Take your Bible and find your place at the book of Philippians chapter 3. As you know, we are studying through the book of Philippians, and we have come to the middle spot of the book. And today we're going to be looking at these first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 3. We won't complete everything that is here in this service. We don't have time to do that, but we will uh, get as far as we can uh, in this service in Philippians chapter 3. Let's bow our heads together for a moment for prayer as we begin today. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your presence. We know you're here. We ask for your presence in a way that we will recognize that we are in your midst. Thank you for so many who have come. Thank you for the parents that have come today and whose children are across the street under the tent. And I pray for our children to be safe. I pray that you'll watch over them and protect them and that they'll have a wonderful time there under the tent uh, this morning. First time they've met together like that uh, in uh, five or six months, uh, going on six months. So, Lord, just uh, bless those children as they're gathering. And Lord, we've come together. Those that are watching us live, these that are here in the auditorium, we've come together as well to worship you. So Lord, speak to our hearts today through your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, life is filled with all kinds of warnings. Uh, For instance, we are warned that we need to wear these masks, and I have mine with me today, and I'll have it on here in a little while, but we're warned about wearing our mask. It's not that we're going to stop the spread of the virus, but it is that we can slow the spread of the virus. And so they ask us when we're coming into public spaces like this to put that mask on, when we leave those public spaces to take that mask off. It's a warning that they've given to us. They warn us about washing our hands and about sanitizing our hands. We probably washed our hands more in the past few months than some of you've washed it your whole life. But you're constantly washing your hands and sanitizing your hands. Some of those things I was doing long before any of this ever started, but, you know, you have to do it. It's a warning they've issued. They said, don't touch your face. You know, don't touch your face and wipe your nose or your mouth and around your eyes and so forth. And uh, the potential of taking that virus into yourself exists because you've touched it somewhere and now you're transferring it to your face and uh, into your respiratory system. I failed miserably on that one uh, on Friday evening. I had an outdoor wedding uh, Friday evening. It was uh, in the upper 80s. Think about that, upper 80s outdoor wedding. Are you all with me? I can't see your faces whether you're smiling or not, so wave every once in a while to say you're there. Uh, Outdoor wedding, upper 80s, and water was just pouring off my face. You know, you're trying to have a beautiful ceremony, uh, uniting two people in marriage, and you got water dripping off the end of your nose right onto your Bible. Uh, You know, you'd have to sometimes just sort of wipe things, but, you know, they're warning us, don't touch your face. Why? Because you can transfer that virus to yourself and... It can cause you problems. Maybe it won't cause much trouble, but maybe it will. So they warn us. But life is filled with all kinds of warnings. Uh, We are told, and I suppose in the months that are yet to come, we will know for sure, that this virus started in Wuhan, China, or at least that's the epicenter of this virus. And apparently, if what we're being told is accurate, uh, China didn't give us full information about what was going on and what was happening Or if they did, there were those who didn't pay attention to the warnings. And consequently, the virus ends up spreading all over the world. If there had been better warning, maybe it could have been contained. Or if we had followed the warning that was given, it could have been contained to some degree. But now it's it's all over the world. Warnings are absolutely important. Warnings are a part of our lives. 
today, as you were driving to, uh, to the church, you looked in your passenger side rearview mirror, and it said to you, warning, that objects are closer than they appear. It's a warning to remind you that when you're moving to the right or to the left to make sure you double check because you want to make sure that you don't hit somebody, somebody's not in that blind spot, and that you realize that that car or uh, you know, that dog or that person, they're closer than you think they are. Life is full of warnings. When you go to get a prescription, I have a prescription I take uh, every day. I get to refill every month, uh, and I go to get a prescription, and it always comes with a couple of sheets of paper. <laughs> On those sheets of paper are the various details about that drug that I have to take for my thyroid, the different kind of drug, what the interactions are of that drug, and the warnings of what to look for if you're taking this, things that you got to pay attention to, things that you need to know about. There are warnings in life. You realize that you can go to some restaurants and you can get a cup of coffee, and on the coffee it says hot. The contents can burn you. Duh. And yet those warnings are absolutely important, aren't they? I can remember growing up, especially as a teenage boy, my mother was the queen of warnings. You know, when you get in the car, David, don't drive over the speed limit. David, don't get distracted by the people that are in the car with you. David, if something falls in the floorboard, don't bend over to pick it up. And, and she was the queen of warnings. You know, at the time, I didn't appreciate it so much. But as I got older, I came to understand that she was warning me because she loved me. She was trying to protect me. She was trying to help me. She was trying to make sure that I didn't get into an accident because of not paying attention, being distracted. And that was before there were cell phones. There was no such thing as a cell phone. Warnings are absolutely important. When you see your child running toward the street, your young child running toward the street, and you know it's a busy street where cars are on it, what do you do? Stop! There are warnings that you give to your child about playing in the street and the dangers that exist. Why do you do that? You do that because you love your children. You do that because you care about your children. Life is full of those kinds of warnings. They're everywhere. Did you know you buy a mattress and a pillow and you'll find a warning label that goes with it? Now, I don't know what can happen to you exactly if you buy one of those mattresses and pillows with that warning label, but I do know that if you tear it off, you've broken the law. <laughs> right? How many of you have broken the law? Yeah, I see a whole lot of hands. Where are the police? Warning, <laughs> don't let the police see you. The point is, is that warnings are a part of life. They're a part of life because people care about us, because people are interested in us, because people are concerned for us, because people love us. It's not just because they want to control us. Sometimes it is, but more often than not, it's because they are interested in us. They're concerned for us, and they care about us, and they love us, and so they warn us out of love. Think about warnings that are in the Bible. You could begin with Noah. Uh, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, the Scripture says. And for more than 100 years, he warned the people of his generation that judgment was going to come. Only his family listened to the warnings and got on the ark. Everybody else was destroyed in the flood, but God sent the warnings Think about the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, all the thou shalt nots. 
Do you realize what those are? Those are warnings that God has given to us because he cares about us. He knows what's best for us. He's trying to safeguard us and protect us. And so he warns us by giving us those thou shalt nots that are in the Ten Commandments. But then you can look beyond the Ten Commandments to the rest of the law. And many times through the law of Moses, you find where where God says, if you do that, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do that. And he's warning them. He's warning them about how they're supposed to live out their lives as the nation of Israel. And when they strayed away as a nation, what did God do? God sent, God sent uh, prophets, Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other prophets. And what were they doing? They were warning the people, if you don't turn from your sins, judgment is coming. Why would God do that? Because God cares, because God loves, because God is interested because God is concerned for, because God knows what's best. Warnings are a part of life. Warnings are a part of the Scripture. Warnings are absolutely essential in guiding our lives. Think about what Jesus said. There were a number of times when Jesus issued warnings of various kinds, but think about the time he was speaking to the Galileans. And Jesus said, except you all repent, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. What was that? That was a warning. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That was a warning. When you get to the letters of Paul, we're going to see one of them today. You find Paul warning the believers about various things that they needed to watch out for, they needed to be careful of, they needed to excise from their spiritual lives and from their churches. He was giving them warnings. And when you get to the Revelation... Everybody loves the Revelation, right? Because the Revelation gives us an outline for events that are yet to come. It's about the future. It's about a period of time that we have not yet fully seen, and we're going to, well, those that are living at that time are going to fully see. And it's a fascinating book to read, but do you realize that the Revelation is more than just an outline for the future? That the Revelation is as well a warning? It's a warning that ultimately we all have to answer to God. Prepare to meet your God because you're going to have to stand before him. You're going to have to give an answer for yourself. So there's all of these warnings. They're all over life. They're in your life. They're, They're in the lives of your family. They're in community, the community where we live. They're in the Bible. They're from from God himself and through the authors of this book inspired by the Spirit of God. They're warning us. Warnings are an absolute essential to life. You don't love someone if you don't warn them about things that can harm them or be dangerous to them. So when we arrive in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is going to issue, at this middle point of the book, he's going to issue a warning. And it's a warning that he intends the Philippians, and by way of the Philippians, all of us, he's going to issue a warning that he intends for them to pay attention to and to follow and to understand that it's a safeguard. Even though he's talked to them about it before, even though he's said it to them before, he's issuing the warning again. And isn't that important? I mean, after all, the warnings that we go through in life, just the general things that we're dealing with, don't we have to be reminded over and over again? And even when we're reminded, what do we do? We blow right past them. So the Apostle Paul, at the opening of chapter 3, at the middle of this book, He begins by giving a warning. 
And he says, I've told you this before, but I'm going to tell you again because some of you aren't paying attention. Some of you aren't listening. I want to make sure to safeguard you. And I've got a warning. And I call this message, Beware the Joy Stealers. I might have should have said, Beware the Joy Snatchers. You know, like the body snatchers. I might have should have said, Beware the Joy Snatchers. But he's going to warn them about some people that are joy stealers. But before he does that, he issues a command. I want you to notice what it is. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. When you see the word finally, it means he's moving toward the end. doesn't mean this is the end. He'll say the word finally again a little bit later in this book. It means he's moving toward the end. As he moves toward the end, he's about to issue a warning. He stops and he says, the first thing I want you to know is that you should rejoice in the Lord. That's not a suggestion. That's not an idea. That's a command that's being issued. As a matter of fact, he'll repeat that command. If you turn over to chapter 4, in verse 4, he repeats the command and he adds a qualifier to it. Chapter 4, verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord. What's the qualifier? Always. Always. That means in every circumstance, in every situation, he says to rejoice in the Lord. Now, do you find it interesting that the Apostle Paul is writing to people in Philippi who are, for the most part, free people and encouraging them to rejoice in the Lord? I mean, the Apostle Paul, at this moment when he's writing, is under arrest in Rome. He's been under arrest for four years. His freedom has been impeded for four years. Right now, he's chained to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He knows that he's going to one day have to stand before the Caesar and give an account of himself and of his ministry, and it could lead to his death. That's why he says earlier, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knows that he could potentially die. He knows that's the potential that exists. But the Apostle Paul isn't the one being encouraged to rejoice. The Apostle Paul is the one who is encouraging others who are free. They're not under arrest. They may be, ha- may be having some persecution, but they're not under arrest. And he's writing to those people some 800 miles away and saying, look, to you that are free, I, listen, I understand rejoice in the Lord. I'm writing to you that are free, whose lives are relatively trouble-free. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in in the Lord. Do you find that interesting? You you would think that the way that command would come would be from the Philippian believers to the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul is the one who is being so unfairly treated for these last four years of his life, and yet it's this man who is under arrest in Rome who is writing to people who are free who says to rejoice in the Lord. So what does he mean when he says to rejoice in the Lord? That's a difficult thing to do, isn't it? I mean, his circumstances are difficult. Paul's circumstances are difficult, difficult, much more difficult than those in Philippi. And yet he commands them, as he is doing, to rejoice in the Lord. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Well, it comes from a Greek word that literally means to be favorably disposed or to lean toward. But what are we favorably disposed toward? What are we leaning toward? Is it our problems? Is it our pain? Is it our circumstances? Absolutely not. 
This word that's translated rejoice is a cognate. It's a derivative of the word grace. Thus, we're not to favorably, be favorably disposed and leaning toward our circumstances. We're to be favorably disposed and leaning toward God's grace. In other words, rather than focusing on our circumstances, which is what all of us seem to do, myself included at times, when things aren't pleasant, he's saying, lift up your eyes above your circumstances and look to the one who is the God of all. Don't look at your circumstances and look for something in which to rejoice. Look at God and find in him something about which you can rejoice. We can rejoice in who he is. We can rejoice in what he's done. We can rejoice in the grace that he's given to us. He's not saying look at your circumstances and rejoice. He's saying look at the Lord and rejoice. The sphere in which this rejoicing takes place. Rejoice in what? The Lord. Rejoice in what? The Lord. That's the sphere. Your circumstances might not be changed, or maybe they will change, but you look to the Lord above those circumstances. We don't rejoice because of what we're enduring. We rejoice in spite of what we're enduring. You understand that the Christian faith doesn't deny the reality of pain and struggle, but it doesn't wallow in it either. Let me say it again. The Christian faith doesn't deny the reality of pain and struggle, but it doesn't wallow in it either. We don't grieve as others who have what? No hope. I love Isaiah 40, verse 29. If you want to write it down so that you can look it up a little bit later in your Bible, this is what it says. We're to lean into the Lord who gives us strength. Listen to what Isaiah 40, verse 29 says. God gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. When the apostle Paul comes and issues this first command before giving his warning, he says, before I give my warning, I want to tell you something that every one of us should be doing. Stop wallowing in your circumstances and complaining about what they are and how difficult they are. His circumstances were far worse than those in Philippi. He says, get your view off of your circumstances and start looking to the Lord and rejoicing in him, in his grace, in who he is, in what he has done. Start looking above and beyond your circumstances to the Lord. I want you to turn with me back to Acts chapter 16. I want to take you back about 10 years Paul wrote Philippians at about AD 61 or so. I want to take you back 10 years when Paul first comes to the city of Philippi, all the way back to about AD 50 or 51. The Apostle Paul and Silas come to the city of Philippi. God sent them there. There's a young girl who's possessed of a, of a demon. And people will come to her, and she's supposed to be able to predict their future. She's supposed to be able to divine the future, their, their particular future. And those who own her are making money off of her. And Paul and Silas meet this young woman. Ultimately, they cast the demon out of her. And guess what? Those who made money off her can no longer make money from her. You want to make somebody mad, hit them in the pocketbook. Right? You want to make somebody mad, hit them in the pocketbook. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul and Silas did. They hit this community in the pocketbook, and now they're angry. They take Paul and Silas under arrest. They have them beaten. They commit them to the, uh, the guard of the, of the jail. 
He takes them, he puts them in the deepest, darkest part of the jail. He puts their feet in stocks. You can imagine their backs are bleeding. They're, they're beaten and bruised. You can imagine in those circumstances that what they could be doing is commiserating in their misery about what's been going on and what is going on in their lives. But listen to what Paul and Silas do. They rejoice in the Lord, verse 25. But at midnight, I mean in the darkest time of the night, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. What were they doing? Rather than wallowing in their pain and in their struggle, they were lifting up their eyes and they were getting their focus on the Lord and finding in him and in what he does and in his grace that is all sufficient. They were finding reason to give thanks to God, to lean into, to, to move in the direction of knowing that he will strengthen and he will help us and he will infuse a joy that can come no other way. Remember what the Apostle Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians? He said, there was a thorn in the flesh that was given to me. I've seen these visions and as a result to keep me humble, God has allowed this thorn in my flesh. I've prayed three times for God to remove it from me. I want it gone. I want my circumstances changed. And God says, I'm not going to change your circumstances, but I'm going to give you grace to endure your circumstances. And Paul begins to rejoice in the Lord. He leans into, he comes disposed toward the grace of God because he gets his eyes off of what isn't going to change and he starts looking at God and he starts saying, God, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to lean into you and I'm going to depend on you. And God, you are good and you are gracious and you are great and you are sovereign and you are holy and you are just. And he goes through thinking about God, our problem, my problem is that when I find my circumstances unpleasant, my tendency is to look at my circumstances and waller in them and post about them. Should I say that again? <laughs> and post about them and get other people to commiserate with me about them. And the Apostle Paul, who's under arrest, chained to a soldier 24-7, has been this way for two years in Rome and two years before that, before he was shipped to Rome, awaiting trial, maybe going to lose his life, writes back to people who are basically free. They have some persecution, but they are basically free. And he says to them, I want you to rejoice in the Lord, no matter what your circumstances are. Don't post it on Facebook and Twitter and all the other places. Get your eyes off of those circumstances and stop wallowing in them and look up to the Lord and let God be your stabilizer and God be your strength and God infuse you with a joy that can only come as you lean into him. So the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, before he comes to his warning, he says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. But secondly, the Apostle Paul says, I want you to resist all false teaching. I want you to resist all false teaching. Look at verses 2 and 3. He goes on. He says, I, at the end of verse 3, he says, it's not tedious for me to tell you this again. I've told you this before. I've warned you before. 
Sort of like telling your children things, and you have to keep telling them again and again and again. I've told you this before, but let me tell you one more time, because I want you to be safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but you should have three times. He says, beware. That's the warning. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. I don't know about you when... Somebody says something once, we ought to listen. But when they say it three times, they mean business, don't you think? I can remember when my mother used to call me and she'd say, David, that meant business. But when my mother said, David, Burton, Lemming, by the way, you can't ever use my middle name. You're not allowed. But when she said, David, Burton, Lemming, oh, that meant a whole lot more than just my first name. And the Apostle Paul comes at this point, this midpoint of this letter, writing to these Philippians who are basically free. They have some persecution, but they are basically free. And he says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. And I want you to resist all false teaching. I want you to resist it. He says, beware of dogs. Now, he's not talking about your little pets at the house. You know, our domesticated pets. You know, the ones that we get their teeth clean. The ones we get all their shots, we get you know, all the surgeries that have to be done to them, the ones that, that have to have all natural dog food or cat food or whatever kind of food it is, the, the ones that we don't go anywhere on vacation without taking with us, we, we, they're part of our family. But in the first century, dogs weren't like that. Dogs, for the most part, weren't domesticated. They ran in packs. They were scavengers. They would bite you if they possibly could. And... The Jews called the Gentiles dogs. It was a derogatory term. They called them dogs. But now the Apostle Paul flips it all, and he flips it back on these particular Jewish men. I'll tell you about in a moment who they are. He flips it back and says, beware of those dogs. They're like scavengers. Everywhere the Apostle Paul went and preached the gospel, they came in behind him, and they were biting people. He said, beware of evil workers. They were working. They were religious. They had their rituals and their routines like a lot of religious people do. But he says they're not good workers. They're evil workers. Do you know that not every church preaches the truth? Do you know that not every church preaches the truth? Do you know that not every preacher that's on television and radio preaches the truth? Beware of those dogs. Beware of those that may be religious and may have some nobility about them. People look at them and think of them as being noble individuals, but beware because they're evil workers. And then he says, beware of the mutilation. He takes the word for circumcision and he changes it a little bit. And he says, they're nothing more than mutilators of the flesh. Mutilators of the flesh. So who is he talking about? He's warning them about some people. Who are these people about whom the Apostle Paul is warning them? They're called the Judaizers. The Judaizers is a word that means to live according to Jewish custom. They were the legalists of their day. They they were happy for people to follow Christ, but they taught that to be truly right with God, people also had to conform to the Jewish law. 
Central to that was circumcision. But then there were all of the other things, the holy days and the fasts and the washings and the kosher laws and all of these other things that were included in the law. So that it's great that you want to follow Jesus, but Jesus was a Jew. You've got to become like a Jew. You've got to become circumcised. You've got to become submissive to all of these laws as Jesus had been submissive to all of these laws. And without that, you don't have the full blessing of the gospel in your life. And they followed Paul everywhere he went. You see him talking about them in other books or other letters that he wrote. They followed him everywhere. They were constantly biting people, evil workers. They were noble in many ways, religiously speaking, but they were evil workers teaching a false doctrine, teaching something that wasn't the circumcision of the law of Moses. It was nothing more than the mutilation of the flesh. Paul comes and he says, I want to tell you something. You have to beware of people who are false teachers. In other words, what Jesus had made available freely to all by his grace, these false teachers said was only available to those that submitted to their legalistic demands. And in the process, they perverted the grace of God, and they turned God's salvation, and even the process of sanctification, they turned it into something that had to be earned and to be merited. It wasn't freely given by God. It was wonderful that you want to follow Jesus, and you put your faith and believe he's the Messiah, but they saw Christianity as a subset of Judaism. Judaism is a foundation on which Christianity is built, but it's not a subset of, Juda- of Judaism. And these Judaizers wanted all of these Gentile people to come into the Jewish faith and practice the Old Testament law, not understanding that Jesus had set people free from that law. In the process, they perverted the grace of Jesus. They were the legalists of the day. Now, the truth of the matter is, there's not any of those that I know of, that I personally know of, that are functioning in our day. I don't don't know anybody personally who's following preachers of the gospel and saying, that's great that you want to follow Jesus and put your faith in him, but you've also got to be circumcised and follow all of these rules of the Old Testament law of Moses. I don't know anybody saying that. There probably is somebody, but I don't know them myself. But do you realize that legalism is still just as real today as it ever has been? Legalism is just as real as it has ever been. You know what legalism is? Legalism is when you take your personal interpretation or application of the truth of God and you make it mandatory for every other person to follow your application exactly. You understand, I'm not telling you you can ever disobey the commands of God. The command of God here is to rejoice in the Lord. And I've given you a way that you can go about rejoicing in the Lord. But the commands of God are like a framework. They're like a framework. And within that framework, you may see things a little differently and do things a little differently than I do as long as you don't go outside that framework. Some of God's commands are more like a point. You have to stand specifically at that spot to be obedient, but most of God's commands, or at least many of God's commands, are like a framework, and he gives liberty amongst us to apply them in some different ways, to see some things differently 
to one another. But suddenly there's always somebody who says, well, my way is the only right way. The way I apply it, the way I see this, is that it has to be done my way. And as soon as they say it has to be done my way and starts imposing that on other people, it becomes a form of legalism. And do you know what legalism does, whether it's like the Judaizers of the first century or whether it's like the legalists of our day? Do you know what it does? It steals the joy out of the Christian faith. It turns us into people who have to follow a long list of rules that aren't even given in the Bible and leave no liberty for any difference of opinion. And yet within the framework of obedience to the command. They're the people who say, well, you can only read one translation of the Bible. If you read any other translation, you're not reading the Bible. They're the ones who say you can only come to church dressed one certain way because that's the only way that you can show respect to God when you're coming to church. They're the ones who say music has to be a certain style and any other style that isn't the style that's my preference isn't of God and God isn't pleased with it. They're the ones who will tell you you can never have a dance. You can never go to a dance and enjoy a dance with your wife or your husband. They're the ones who will tell you all of these different rules. They got, you can't go to the movie theater. You can't go watch a movie. Of course, when it comes to their television set and been edited down, then they'll watch it, the hypocrisy of it all. But you can't dare go to the movie theater, and this will be silly, But it used to be you had to have your hair a certain length. You know, it couldn't touch your ear, and it had to be off your collar. And if you didn't have it off your ear and off your collar, then you weren't following the Word of God. And they imposed their legalism on us and on others. And you know what they do in the process? They turn it into a checklist. Do you know more important than any checklist is your heart? Because you can do a checklist and your heart be so far from God But when your heart is right with God, do you know what you want to do? You want to please God. And you don't need everybody else giving you a list of rules to follow. That's the legalism of our day. And why is this so important? Why is it so important that Paul warns them? Why is it so important that I warn you? Because it steals that they are the joy snatchers. They are the joy stealers. They come into a church and they say, unless you do it this way, then every other way is wrong. What a shame. D.A. Carson is an author that I like to read periodically. and He's writing in this particular paragraph about a section a little bit later in this chapter, but you're going to get the point. There's two sentences out of this paragraph I want to draw to your attention. He writes, most will not be greatly tempted to boast about their Jewish ancestry and ancient rites of race and religious heritage. But we may be tempted to brag about still less important things, our wealth, our status, our education, our emotional stability, our families, our political or business successes, our denominational alignments, or even about which version of the Bible we use. Now, here are the two, here are the two statements. He says, be careful. There's the warning. Be careful of people like that. They tend, here's the second sentence, they tend to regard everyone who is outside their little group as somehow inferior. That's, my friends, is legalism. Because you don't do it the way I think you should do it, 
you are inferior to me. Though both of us are within the boundary of the commandment that God has given. And in the process of this legalistic approach to life, do you know what happens? We pervert the grace of God. We turn God's salvation into a matter of works rather than being something that's unmerited. We even turn the sanctification process into something that you muster up within yourself rather than by the power of the Spirit of God. Listen to what Paul says, verse 3. Look at it again. Who are the true believers, those who are really the circumcised in heart, not in the flesh? For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. We live by the Spirit of God. We worship by the Spirit of God. We seek to be controlled by the Spirit of God because obedience to a long list of rules doesn't make me spiritual. What makes me spiritual is living a life of surrender to God where the fruit of the Spirit is borne out in my life on a daily basis. And when you don't have that kind of fruit, something's wrong. We pervert the grace of God. Do you realize that adding anything to God's grace cancels grace in our cancel culture? Do you realize that anything that you add to God's grace cancels grace? I hear people sometimes explaining the gospel in ways that disturbs me, disturbs me greatly. There's a, there's a popular way to present the gospel. It's called the ABCs of the gospel. You've got to accept, you've got to believe, and you've got to confess. You've got to accept, you've got to believe, and you've got to confess. Where do you get that from? It's not in the Bible. You mean there's three steps to coming to Jesus Christ? You mean there's, there's a path I have to follow, this particular three-step path that I have to follow? That's not what the Scripture says. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. What do you have to do to be saved? Believe. You say, well, we're going to put repentance before it. Well, by repentance, most people mean you've got to be willing to quit your sins. Do you even know all your sins? And what if you've forgotten some of your sins? And what if you get, what if you come to the place of believing, but then you remember some sin that you didn't, that you didn't confess and you weren't willing to turn from? Repentance means a change of mind. I've been trusting myself or something else, and now I trust Jesus and Jesus alone. And people add to the other side of it. Well, you've got to believe on Christ and be baptized. You've got to believe on Christ and have lots of good works. You've got to believe on Christ. Listen, you are saved by believing. I've been preaching this for 38 years. I have not changed my message, and I'm not going to change it because it's in the Scripture and legalistic approach to salvation, legalistic approach to sanctification steals the joy out of being a follower of Jesus. I want it to be a joy to be able to serve Jesus Christ. Amen? I'm going to finish here. I'm not through. The next point is we have to rely solely on the Lord, and we'll talk about that next week. 
But there's an illustration that Warren Wiersbe gives that I like. It's about a woman who thought that salvation and sanctification were both necessary to have faith and works. And Warren Wiersbe tells this story that there's a woman arguing with her pastor about the matter of faith and works. She said, I think, I'll, I think that getting to heaven is like rowing a boat. She said, one oar is faith and the other is works. If you use both, you get there. If you use only one, you go around in circles. Don't you love the illogical logic of some people? Her pastor replied, there's only one thing wrong with your illustration. Nobody's going to heaven in a rowboat. You're going to heaven in Jesus Christ. Because you have believed in Jesus Christ. Should you go on to be a disciple? Should you desire to live out your life for him? Should you follow him all the days of your life? Yes! But believing on Jesus is the only prerequisite for becoming a child of the living God. And the legalist comes and says, no, 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 like the Judaizers. It's great that you've believed in Jesus. That's, that's great. I'm happy for you. You should believe in Jesus, but Jesus was a Jew, and you're going to have to be a subset of Judaism. You're going to have to come to circumcision. You're going to have to follow the holy days and all of the feast days and all of the washings and all of the fasts. You're going to have to do all of those things if you're going to have the full blessing of the gospel. And the apostle Paul says, beware, beware, beware of people who come preaching something other than the simple gospel of faith in Jesus.